0: Good morning and welcome to Arden First Baptist. If you are visiting here, we want you to know that you're right at home. If you're a first-time guest, uh, we just want you to know that we're really excited that you're here. We're a place where our mission is to reach ordinary people and lead them into extraordinary life in Christ. So we like to say we're a place where you can belong, believe, and become. If you will take out your listening guides, we're in the book of James. And we're going to just cover two verses today, so before some of you think you're getting out early, you might, but we'll see. Uh, We're going to talk about what it's like to have authentic faith, as James calls it, true religion. I have in front of me a long rope. For those of you listening to the podcast, it's a long white rope. You notice this rope stretches on and on. And no, it's not what I walk my dog with, if you're wondering, you know, but it would be nice rope. But I want you to think about this rope. It represents eternity. If you think a rope that would continue on forever, it would just continue on. You notice at the end of this rope is a little red. Marking and this little red marking is just very small in comparison to the long rope. And this represents your life, how short it is. And many of us. Cannot wait until we get to this point in our life, our 20s, and then we can 't wait till we get kids at middle age, and then many of us are saving up all of our lives for this little part called retirement, and we cannot wait until we retire and just enjoy life and you notice that 's just a teeny tiny spot, so we spend all of our life thinking about this section right here when The rope continues on indefinitely for eternity. Today we're going to talk about how true religion looks at the big picture. It looks like how your life is lived affects eternity, affects what will happen forever. So my question to you is in this little red space on the rope we call life, how are you living it? Are you living it just to save up for retirement? And retirement, are you living just for the now or... Are you living for this long rope that represents eternity? Because we have only one life to live and only what is done for Christ will last. But we have this teeny tiny area to live this life. So James is going to talk about true religion, how true religion is something that can be heard. True religion is something that can be seen and true religion is something that can be experienced. So James is going to take us on a little journey of your talk, your walk, and your witness. How many of you are ready to jump into the word today? Say amen. Amen. All right, if you will, please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your word, how powerful it is. And Father, make us clean vessels, not just to receive your word, but to do your work. So where we fall short of you in all these areas we've been talking about in the book of James, forgive us and help us. And God, help us to realize we have only one life, which will soon be past, but only what is done for Christ will last. So Lord, in the short time you've given us here on earth, help us to make it count. We ask and pray your blessing to be upon your word and help us to understand what it has to say and help us not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you will read with me, we're going to be in James one twenty six and 27. And believe it or not, it's taken us seven Sundays to get through the first chapter of James. Because it's just been such uh, good things for us to talk about. And almost every Sunday, uh, it seems like the past few weeks at least, people say, you stepped on my toes this morning, preacher. And my response is, I didn't, James did. I'm just the mailman, I'm just the delivery boy. I just deliver the message and wherever it hits... May God help us not just to listen, but to put it into practice. So if you will read with James 1, 26 and 27, you can take your Bibles or you can look on the screen. We have the scripture there. It says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And God bless his word. So James gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And often we don't say the word religion anymore. We usually say, does someone have authentic faith? But using James's terminology... Today we're going to talk about the essence of true religion. What does it mean to have authentic faith? The first point is this. True religion is heard by one's talk. It's heard by one's talk. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. Many of you are familiar with John Wesley. He was the the famous pastor that traveled on horseback and um, impacted the lives of many. Uh, He and his brother Charles um, helped form the the Methodist Wesleyan denomination. And um, it was said that John was kind of a snazzy dresser. He would wear really sharp clothing. And back in the day, sometimes the pastors wore bow ties. And if you wanted to be a little fancy, a little snazzy, you would have little strings hanging out the bow ties. So there was this lady in the congregation that was known to be critical of the pastor. So whenever he got done speaking... Uh, She basically said, Pastor, I need to have a word with you. And he's like, oh, dear, what is it this week? And uh, so she said, your bow tie is an offense to me. And John Wesley called for a pair of scissors. And he's like, "Uh, it's offensive because the bow ties are a little too long. The little strings are a little too long. And she said, that's right. So he gave her the scissors. And he said, I want you to cut it to the length that you think is appropriate for the bow tie, the, the ribbons to be. And she cut it up all the way up to the tie. And uh, he's like, thank you. Let me have... He's like, does it look better now? She said, yes, it's fine now. So he said, well, let me have those scissors back. So she gave him the scissors. And he said, stick out your tongue. Because your tongue is an offense to me. And I'm sure you won't mind if I cut a little bit of it off. True story. Pastors couldn't get away with saying that today, could they? <laughs> but I can tell the story. So true religion... Um, You've got to be careful what you say. As we read a few weeks ago, the rabbi, Jewish rabbis, would say the tongue is walled in behind a whole wall of teeth, and yet your ears are open. And how is it that we talk twice as much as we listen when we have two ears and only one tongue? So James says true religion um, is someone that's careful what they say. Now, the word religion in this, the Greek word, it refers to external observances it's the outward reality of the inward heart so what James is saying is what people see you doing they don't really know your heart they just see the works behind it so if you say that you are a follower of Christ but yet they hear your mouth and it contradicts what you say you believe people will say yeah is that really true whenever you have no control over your talk it also symbolizes you also have no control over your walk William Norris, the American journalist, once wrote, if your lips would keep from slips five things to observe with care, to whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how and when and where. So that that brings up a practical question. Well, James, if we have a problem bridling your tongue, why is that? Well, I'm glad you asked the question, because throughout the whole Bible, especially the Proverbs, it lists things that we struggle with so i came up with a list called the seven deadly sins of talk and as we go over this list i guarantee all of us will be convicted at least with one or two so if you feel a little conviction welcome to the club remember this is not just a truth church it's also a grace church god gives grace where we fall short the first deadly sin of talk is deceitful talk don't say that which is not true and honest look at proverbs four twenty four on the screen it says, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. So deceitful talk is someone that says something, but they know it's not true. And a lot of the people they talk to know it's not true. And you encounter deceitful talk everywhere you go. You ever do a business deal and they say we service what we sell and then they don't want you to call back. You know, there's so many ways of that. Uh, the second deadly sin of talk is dirty talk. Don't say that which is not holy. Ephesians 4.29 is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to follow, but yet we're called to go after the standard. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. The problem is the word no. Most of us can get by most of the time, but it says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. The the third point of deadly sins of talking, the things that we struggle with is discouraging talk. I think most of us in the congregation would say, ouch. Because how many of us say things that discourage people instead of encourage people? Look at the last part of Ephesians 4.29. It says, but what is good for necessary edification that may impart grace to the hearers? We have a lot of builders in our church. And the word edification makes you think of the word edifice, to build a building. So the idea is, instead of tearing people down... As Christians were to what build people up? Can I get an uh-huh or an ouch? The fourth deadly sin we see from talk is divisive talk, talking in a way that causes fellow brothers or sisters to take a side. Um, it it kind of works in not just in the workplace but also in the church. Let's say so and so wants this done in the church. Let's say the carpet uh, needs to become red. And the other side wants the carpet to be green. Some of you have seen that in churches. And you take a side on a non-essential issue. Proverbs 6.19 says, A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. says to stay away from that. So in other words, the body of Christ is meant to be united. So we've got to be careful with our talk. Are we uniting people? Are we bringing people together? Are we hindering them and causing division? Number five, and I would say, ouch to this one, unrestrained talk. Talking too much can often lead to saying things that you later regret. Look at Proverbs 10:19. And every time I read this, I say, ouch, and God help me. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. So in other words, if you have someone that has the gift of gab, they like to talk a lot. That says that if you talk a lot, you're most likely going to sin a lot in your words. And all of us extroverts said, God help us. <laughs> all right, number six, two-faced talk. You ever have a friend, a coworker, someone you knew that said something to you, but then they talk to someone else and they say something completely different because it's somebody else? This is what we call two-faced talk. It's basically you're changing what you say depending upon who you're talking to. Proverbs 11:19 says, The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. But through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. So it's saying don't speak out both sides of your mouth. Keep a bridle on your tongue. Number seven, and this is the one churches never deal with, right? Gossip talk. <laughs> uh, basically, gossip is saying something that you think is juicy gossip. It could be even prayer concerns, you know. Pray for brother so-and-so. There, da-da-da. And then it spreads around the church. You ever heard of prayer gossip? You've got to be careful, Proverbs 11:13 says, "A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret." Wouldn't it be great if everyone you talk to and said, "Hey, this is confidential," they keep it that way? But wouldn't the church be so much more authentic and real, and people sharing? And that's that's something we're striving to be. If you've uh, just been here, Arden First, we're a church that strives to be authentic and real. What you see is what you get. We're imperfect, but we're people in progress god is molding us so when james says if anyone thinks he's religious if you think you're got it together as a christian but yet you don't bridle your tongue you you know fall into this list and it's not talking about one time slip up this is talking about a lifestyle this is talking about someone that keeps on doing it and they just you know once a gossip always a gossip it doesn't have to be that way so james it says if that's true um Notice it says they deceive their own heart. If you look to the Bible, so many people have been deceived. And the thing about deception, uh, to quote Ross in my Sunday school class, uh, we were talking about today, is when you're deceived, you don't realize it. Because if you realize it, you wouldn't be deceived, right? So it's a blind spot. And you read throughout the course of Scripture, Eve, she was deceived, right? The serpent beguiled her. She thought that God was holding back on her. You read about the Pharisees. They thought they were righteous. But Jesus said, hey, the outward looks great, but the inward is full of corruption. Uh, They were religious, but they didn't have the true essence of religion. The rich young ruler in the Bible, he was deceived. He thought that his money and his stuff would last forever, right? And it didn't. He went away sad, sad. But Jesus said, if you'll just follow me, you can have riches in heaven. He thought the riches here... Were the true riches. So how do we not be deceived? How do we guard against this? I'm glad you asked that question. Dr. Stephen Reiser um, brought, and this is your listening guide, several ways we can be inoculated against deception. He gives very practical steps. Because if James says, don't be deceived, we'll be like, okay, how? Well, the first step he gives is believe God wants you to know. He wants his people to be free. In other words, God is not playing hide-and-go-seek with the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. So the truth is there. But as we learned last week, just do it. It's one thing knowing the truth. It's quite another thing doing the truth and living the truth. Number two, and I love his point here, be willing to do his will in advance of knowing it. So if God's already shown you what to do and you're like, I'm not willing to do that, do you expect God to reveal more truth? If you're not obeying the revealed will of God for your life now, how can you expect God to reveal further truth? It's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, My daughter Kira is so good. She can put those 200 pieces together in no time, and I'm still like, I don't know where this piece goes. But it's kind of like whenever God gives you a piece of the puzzle and you put it in, the picture seems to make more sense. It's a more fuller picture. But if you're not willing to put that piece in place, in other words, obey the truth, you're not going to get the other piece of the puzzle usually. Number three... And as a Baptist church, we affirm this. Believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God and our final authority. Amen. Here's the thing culture changes. You can read the newspaper every day, and there's so many different opinions and columnists, uh, people that write columns and say one thing or another. But you know, the thing about the Bible, it's true. It doesn't change. You could take any topic under the sun, take marriage. And you could send it to 40 different people in Asheville. And how many different opinions do you think you're going to get on marriage? Now, you think about the Bible. It was written by approximately 40 different authors over a span of 1,500, 2,000 years. I mean, a pretty big span. And they were written on different, from different continents. And they didn't have email where they could email each other and say, Hey, I'm writing it about uh, marriage. Uh, make sure you agree. They didn't have that correspondence like we have now. But they wrote about the most controversial issues, and yet they all said the same thing. That shows you the Bible has one author being the Holy Spirit. And he used human authors as instruments. He breathed on them the inspiration. And they, through their own intellect and personalities, wrote at one point the very words of God and also the words of men as the words of God. So that's why we say the Bible is inspired. It's the Word of God. Number four... Concerning the Bible, be diligent in studying God's word with a humble, teachable attitude. So, Dr. Reiser said, if you practice these four things, it will keep you from being deceived. Notice he says, if you don't bridle your tongue, this religion is useless, right? And I love how practical James is. Did you ever think about your faith? It should be practical, it should be useful. Have you ever been in a Bible study or a church service where whatever was taught and there was no practical application, you're like, okay, God is great, but what does that have to do with my life? And that's why all the Bible is useful. Even when 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for doctrine, teaching, instruction in righteousness, and so on. The Bible is practical. So whenever you read Scripture, you've got to ask yourself, What does this apply to my life? How how does this change me? True faith is a practical faith and it's relevant. So we see that true religion is heard by one's talk. Number two, we see true religion is seen by one's walk. So it's heard by one's talk and it's seen by one's walk. Verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is to do this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. That's such a powerful verse. It's a verse where we're like, wow, this this is not just the definition of religion. It just gives some examples. So this is not a comprehensive summary of everything authentic faith looks like. But James gives us an example of here's some here's some applications. If you have a real faith, here's what it really looks like in your your life every day. I was Hearing about a story about Bible translators in India. And this story really blew me away. They they found someone that knew the language and they could help translate um, from the native tongue into English. And the person translating it was actually a Hindu who spoke very well English. So they hired this Indian person that was Hindu religion and they were translating the Bible. And as this Hindu was translating the Bible, he began to get convicted and said, man, this stuff, this, this Bible is so powerful. And he made a comment that really stood out to me. He said, if I could find a group of people that was really living this out, I would be willing to join that group. And the missionaries are like waving their hands. We're well, right here. I mean, we, we left our country. We're in India. We're translating the Bible. And he said, no, I've heard the way you guys talk. I've heard the way you speak about other people. What you say and what you do doesn't line up with this book. Somebody said, ouch. James says, if a person doesn't bridle his tongue, it doesn't show this pure and undefiled religion. So it brings up a question I asked as I was studying this. And I've said it. I'm sure you've said it. We say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, right? Well, if it's not a religion, why does James call it true and undefiled religion? <laughs> don't you love how our Christian cliches sometimes don't really mesh I know what we're saying when we say that. We're saying religion is a bunch of rules and regulations. Christianity is grace. And I get that. That's true. We say religion is where man reaches up to God and tries to reach God. Christianity is where God reaches down to men. I get that. What James is talking about is if I can't see it, if I can't hear it, if I can't experience it, how do I know if it's true? It's true religion in the sight of people. Now, we know we have a relationship with God, and that's un- undeniable for those of us who have Christ. We would say it's a relationship. We don't use it as a religion in the terms of it's just moralism. No, it's, it's a relationship with God. But what James is trying to go on the other side of the spectrum is saying, if I can't see it, if I can't hear it, if I can't experience it, we fall into what a lot of people say. We talked about last week. I would go to church, but the church is full of hypocrites. Basically what people say. And James just says, listen, let's not give people that excuse. But something I would give is if you're going to say that I would go to church, but the church is full of hypocrites, if you're going to use that reasoning, you have to use that in every sphere of your life. You have to be consistent logically. So if, is that, if that's your reasoning, do you have that same reasoning about the grocery store? Yeah, Last time I checked, the grocery store is full of hypocrites. Is that, is that your reasoning about going to the gym or a sport? Everywhere you go, imperfect people exist, including the church. The difference with the church is we just happen to be sinners who are forgiven. It's not that we don't still mess up. We just find grace, and God's grace fills in the gaps. Kind of go to uh-huh. So he says, pure and undefiled religion. Now, what is pure and undefiled? What does that look like? Well, the idea of pure is, is like it's untainted. And undefiled means it stays away from that which could taint it. So, in other words, it's pure. And it stays pure. So what does that look like? Okay, practically. James, help us out. He gives us several thoughts there. How this should be the course of one's walk as it pertains to helping others. The first one is this. Help out those who can't help themselves. James talks about the fatherless. That is the orphan. You think about the orphan, not just in the Greco-Roman society, but in today. People who don't have parents. That's really hard really hard to make it even if you're a single parent how hard it is to get your kids on the right path and keep them and many of you have been single parents and you know how hard that is so what James is saying is if you want people to see God living inside of you help those who can't help themselves so in other words the orphans those who are fatherless or motherless or single parent homes guess who should be helping them the church right we should be a sports system so what does that look like practically I'm so glad you asked that question Well, let's say you have a single mom in the church. She has two kids. Wouldn't it be nice if someone in the church uh, offered to say, hey, I'll watch your kids for you. Go out, go grocery shopping. And all the moms then said amen to that, right? That's practical, practical theology. Um, Financially, they're struggling. What would it look like if the church bought a single mom or even single dad who's struggling groceries? Wouldn't that look like true religion to the world? The neighbor looks and there's a, a thing of groceries on their, their doorstep. I'm like, what happened? Well, the church. The church is not just some place we go to on Sundays. The church is the bodies. It's the people inside this room. We are the church. Yeah, we, we gather here at 38, 39 Sweeten Creek Road. But we're the church everywhere we go. It's not the building. It's the people. Amen? So we have the fatherless. That's the orphans. But then we have the loveless. Those who have lost their loves. The widows. Our church is blessed with many widows. What James says is we're to visit the fatherless and we're to visit the widows. And the word visit, by the way, is not a casual drop in. How you doing? Let me pray for you. Um, The word visit, it comes from the Greek word where we get our word overseer or bishop. And the idea is it's an ongoing relationship. It's I'm not just watching over your physical needs. I'm watching over your soul and I'm here for you. So how does the church have a ministry to widows? It's a good question. We've got, we got to develop that out. We've got a great ministry, but guess what? As a church, we can always do better um, to help the widows, to show them that, you know what, you're not loveless. Even though your spouse died, you have a family that's here for you. And we're going to be the father to the fatherless. And we're going to be the, the person that shows the love to those who have lost their loved one. Amen. And we said, ouch. (laughs) Um, And it says, in their trouble. What does that mean? Why are widows and orphans in trouble? Well, if you just look around, you can see that the fatherless, those who don't have their parents around and they feel all alone in the world, they have this sense of abandonment. Like, where's my my parents? They're gone. I'm, I'm by myself. And by the way, widows, don't they feel the same way? My husband's gone. My wife's gone. I feel alone in this world. And when you feel alone in this world, It's easy to feel like you're in trouble. It's easy to feel like, where's my help? And that's where the church, all of us, has to step up and say, you know what? We're going to be an advocate for those who are the marginalized of society, those who feel alone. We've got to be here, and we're going to help them. You know, the saying that God helps those who help themselves, that's not true. God helps those who can't help themselves. But God also helps those who are helping those who can't help themselves. I'll say that again. God helps those who can't help themselves, but he also helps those who are helping those who can't help themselves. Amen. So we've got to help them, but also we've got to be a hero for someone in need. There are so many people in need. So don't limit James to widows and orphans. That's the application, but that goes beyond that. It's anyone in need. In the early church, when someone was struggling financially, people would sell houses and lands and You know, it would be like someone selling a car. It, It went on and they would help. So whenever someone lacked and someone that had overabundance, they would help that person out. That's religion that the world can see and say, man, this is something I've never seen before. People giving away stuff. In such a materialistic society, the antidote to greed is serving and giving others what they need. Amen? So what does the Bible say about those in need? And I have this on your listening guide. What does the Bible say about the marginalized, the widows and orphans? I don't have time, but throughout the entire Bible, God is an advocate. God is a fan. God is supporting the widows and orphans and strangers. Let me read just a few verses. This is on your listening guide. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18. It says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, He shows no partiality and nor does he take a bribe. Now listen to what God does. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Don't you love how God provides for those who need it? Deuteronomy 14, later on in the same book, 29, it says, Give to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as to the foreigners living among you. The widows the orphans in your towns, so they can eat and be satisfied. So God's saying, hey, those who are needy, those who don't have land, the widows and orphans, those in need, help them. And notice what God says He'll do, a promise. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. So if you will help those who can't help themselves, guess what? God's going to help you. A lot of times we we think that you know God just is going to give out, but sometimes He's going to do it through you. He's going to use you as an instrument. So if you've been given great financial resources, much is given, much is also required. Isaiah 117, it says, learn to do good. Notice you have to learn to do it. It doesn't come naturally. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. Notice it says plead for the widow. So many widows need someone to be the voice for them. They feel lonely. They feel isolated. Are you going to be the voice for the widow? Are you going to be the voice of the the orphan? Am I? So this true religion James is talking about, all of us is like, ouch, God help me. But you know, He gives us grace. And just because the standard is high doesn't mean we lower the standard so it makes us feel better. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us rise up to the standard. Amen? And finally, number three, what is true religion? What is authentic faith? Not only is it seen and not only is it heard but it's experienced by one's witness. Notice it says, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The story is told by about a mine owner's wife that had this coal mine, and she wanted to see what her husband's operation looked like. So she asked for a tour of the coal mine, and she came, ladies, wearing a bright white dress. And uh, the guy that was the manager of that day said, Honey, you can't come in the coal mine wearing that white dress. And she said, I can do what I want to. I am the owner's wife. And he said, well, you can wear that white dress, but it will not come out white. It's going to be black as coal when you come out. And the thing about it is, how do we go into this world? Jesus has made us pure by his grace. How do we stay pure in a world full of spots? That's a tough question. It's really hard. And James says, keep yourself unspotted from the world. Now, what does James mean by the world? What does he mean by the cosmos? Well, the one definition says, world here describes the total system of evil that pervades every sphere of human existence and instead set in opposition to God and his righteousness. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's too out there, right? Give me a definition to help me. Okay, I came up with a simple definition. When the Bible says about not loving the world, Is not talking about the people, but it's talking about the corrupt system of morality that's set in opposition against God, against Christ, and against the Bible. So when when James says, don't be corrupted by the world, he's not saying you don't love the people. He's saying, don't let the morality of the world corrupt you. The best place for a boat is in what location? The water. You guys are smart. But water in the boat is not a good thing. The boat belongs in the water, but water doesn't belong in the boat. The best place for a Christian who's on mission is in the world. The Christian is in the world, but the world should never be in the Christian. So how do we navigate through this journey of life in the world, but the world not in us? That's a tough one. So how do we, how do, we do that? You know... I brought a few applications on your outline. And this, this like I said, it's by grace through faith. And even your sanctification is by grace through faith. That's all true. At the same time, God asked us to walk with him and to make steps towards holiness. So when you're listening, God, I came up with a few applications of this. The first one is keep a daily relationship with God. What does that look like to have a daily relationship with God. What does it look like to spend time with Him in prayer, in Bible study? That helps you be in the world, but the world not in you. You know, we're going to be filled with something, right? We're either going to be filled with God, or we're going to be filled with the world. And every time we get into the Word, it allows us to say, Holy Spirit, fill me once again. Where I can't, You can. Where I'm lacking, You're able, God. Help me. The second one is confession. That's acknowledging where you mess up, and that's allowing you to turn from that and have a brand new start. We live in a non-confessional world. Some of you grew up in Catholic backgrounds and other denominations where they had time of confession. The challenge with Baptists is, where's where their time of confession? James 5.16 says, confess your faults to one another. Now, granted, we confess our sins straight to God. We don't need a high priest. But for accountability, we need someone to hold us accountable, Right? And we don't have that. So what happens is we live in darkness because we don't have anyone we can talk to. Yes, you can talk straight to God. You don't need a priest. But we need each other to help us. What about getting connected to your church community? Um, we have this uh, discipleship pathway. And I'll have a slide for you. And this is something new we just uh, revealed. And it's kind of like the idea of the guy on the pathway. You're on a journey. And you notice there's four simple steps and uh, we characterize it as this. The first one is active. Um, am I active in worship? And worship is not just a service. It's a lifestyle. But the idea is if I'm going after other stuff instead of God, you know, I'm not really active in, in the things of God. I'm not really active in worship. You know, when, when I have a choice between God and something else, who do I choose? And there's no legalistic requirement, but it's like my heart loves God so much I want to spend time with Him. The imagery is, for those of you who are married, imagine if you, husbands, you said to your wife, you know, I really love you, baby. I just want to see you once a month. <laughs> how would that? How well would that go over? And we say to the lover of her souls, I love you, but I don't really want to spend time with you. That, that just doesn't go over very well, right? The second one is connected. Part of our emphasis the next two weeks, we have sign-up tables over here, is we want everyone connected to a life group you ask, what is a life group? Well, a life group is a small group. So we have Sunday school. We have groups that meet in the community. It's a place where we live life together. And over on the sign-up, we're going to have time at the end of the service after we pray. Uh, there's 11 groups to choose from. That's a lot for a church of our size. We have 11 different groups. And this allows you to say, you know what? I don't want to just be a, um, just a bystander. I want to get involved. I want to get connected. The third one is, let's say you're connected to worship. You're in a small group. Is embrace. Are you embracing your place? That's serving and giving. Because every person in the body of Christ has a spiritual gift. The question is, are you using it? If you're not serving, you're swerving spiritually. And God wants us to get connected and use our gift. So if you are active and connected and embracing your place, often what happens is, number four, you multiply. You lead someone to Christ. And guess what? You take them along. Hey, why don't you come to this Bible study with me? Why don't you come to church? And the whole point of discipleship is leading people to Christ and teaching them about the things of God. So what I want to challenge you, starting in September on, is who are you discipling? Who's the one person that you're taking along life's journey? What would happen to Arden first if every person led one person to Christ every year? People in the community would begin to have a relationship with Christ. People's lives and hearts would be changed, and we would begin to fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples. Amen? So, the final point I want to bring is a story. I was reading about um, this town um, along the East Coast, and it was a coal mining town. It was so bad, there was dust and slit everywhere. For those of you who remember back in the day, the coal mining towns... Just gray dust everywhere. The, the dust covered the the trees, and it covered the mailboxes, and even in the lawn, you could see this gray soot. Not a place you would want to live unless you worked in the coal mine. So, um, the story is told by Donald Bardhouse. He was driving through, and he just had never really been much, spent much time in a coal town, and uh, he noticed a white, bright flower that was just stood out. And they were driving through the town. He's like, let's stop. So they stopped and looked at the flower. All around him was soot and gray and ash and just that little fine coal that just was all in the air. And this flower stood there standing out as a bright white flower. And the story goes on to say a barn house just could not believe it. So they're observing. And the friend said, well, let me show you something. And he grabbed a handful of soot and put it on the white flower. And Dr. Barnhouse is like, what are you doing? This is the only white flower in town, and you're making it dirty and polluted. And the friend said, just wait a second. So they watched and waited. And little by little, the soot just rolled off the flower. And he was just astonished. And after several minutes of watching, the flower became bright white again. And he's like, how did this happen? And he said, what it is, is there's a consistency in the flower petals, And there's a certain enamel that protects the flowers. So whenever the soot comes on the flowers, it just has a tendency to roll off, push it away, and it's gone. And that's an illustrative of our lives. God has made you as a white flower in a world that's covered with soot. And you know what? If you allow the Holy Spirit inside of you to to be pure and to stay pure in this world, full of pollution, Being in the world, but the world not being in you. People will look around and say, this is real faith. This is true religion. So your take home truth is this. Do for one what you wish you could do for the many. As Annie Stanley says a lot, do for one what you wish you could do for the many. Well, some of you will say, well, the world is full of orphans and widows. I can't help. Well, can you help one? Can you go over one person's house? You may not be able to visit everybody in this church. Um, But do for one what you wish you could do for the many. Let your talk, your walk, and your witness be the essence of your authentic faith. And as we mentioned, true religion, it can be heard through your talk, it can be seen through your walk, and it can be experienced through your witness. So allow your faith to be something that people can see, they can hear, and they can experience. Your talk, your walk, and your witness. So your action step. Well, how does this apply to me? I'm so glad you asked that question. Help someone this week who can't help themselves. Who is someone that you can reach out to? Who is someone that's in need? You can't help everybody, but you can help one person. October 15, go and put that on your calendars. We're going to do a Thanksgiving giveaway for the widows and orphans and needy of our society. We're going to have a regular church Thanksgiving meal, but we're adding a second one for the community. We're going to invite the widows, the orphans, those in need, um, people who financially are struggling. And we're not just going to give them a hot meal, but we're going to give them love of Christ. And we're going to say, you know what? We don't want to just say that we're followers of Christ. We want to live it so that you can say it, see it, and experience it. Let us pray. Father, I bring back the rope illustration. Our lives are like this eternal rope. We do have a beginning, but we are eternal, and we're going to live forever in some place, whether heaven or whether hell, depending on what we do with Jesus Christ. So, Father, my prayer for each person in this room is that they would make the decision, first of all, for the believer, with no one looking around. How many would say, Pastor Timothy, you know, you mentioned about my talk, my walk, and my witness, and Truthfully, I was convicted on most of those accounts. Pray for me that I will live out my faith in an authentic, real way. If that's you, raise your hand. I'm raising my hand with you because I, as I read these two verses, I too was deeply convicted. God, you see your hands lifted to the sky. Forgive us where we fall short. And God, thank you that we're not just a place of truth, but we're also a place of grace. So God, where we fall short, there's no condemnation in Christ. Make us more like your son. And we thank you for that. And while the believers are still praying, if there's a seeker here today that would say, Timothy, you know, I've never experienced true faith. I've heard about it, but I've never seen it, heard it, experienced it. If that's you today, the Bible says Jesus is standing at your heart, knocking on your door. And if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, that he was buried and he rose again, that he's God, That he's good and he has a plan for you. Right where you're sitting in your seat. Your seat can be your sanctuary. Just pray in your own words this prayer. Jesus, I need to give my life to you. I want this authentic faith that we've heard about today. Jesus, I invite you into my life. I pray that you would step out of heaven and into my heart. Please forgive me of my sins. I turn from them and I turn my life over to you. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you into the family of God. Father, help us to have a true religion that can be seen, that can be heard, and that can be experienced through our talk, our walk, and our witness to the watching world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.